I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, July 13th, 2021. Coming up, we learn the best place in Boulder County to see a rare and beautiful cousin of the dragonfly. Oh, there he goes. Oh, he just flew. Yeah. We hear of changes to gut microbes that may warn of celiac. To really figure out which child will go on to develop celiac disease. And then, how will COVID affect death rates in the years ahead? CU Boulder sociologist Brian Masters says the news may not be good. We were letting those caseloads rip disproportionately through communities of color, and we are now seeing the consequences in it with the death statistics that we're reporting. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science, starting with a rare and beautiful cousin of the dragonfly. It's the ebony-winged damselfly, also known as the jewel wing. It's showing up at a little creek in Flag Park near Lafayette. Here are naturalists Ruth Carol Cushman and Scott Sievers to tell us more. We're at Flag Park in Lafayette, just a little bit south of Baseline Road, and we're looking out across some beautiful grassland, rolling hills. Oh, oh, a big fight happened between two dragonflies that were tail-chasing each other like two old World War II planes. There's a little creek below us that we're going to search for the ebony wings. Today we're going to go look for... One of the damselflies called a ebony jewelwing. Damselflies, to distinguish them from dragonflies, a dragonfly holds their wings almost perpendicular to their body out, like a plane. Damselfly folds them neatly over their back. Damselflies come in all different sizes, from very tiny fork tails to these very big, broad-winged damselflies, as they call them. Ebony jewel wing are almost two inches in length, which is probably the biggest damselfly in North America. It's spectacular with a metallic blue-green head, thorax, and abdomen, and then these really black wings. It's a relatively new species to Boulder County. This year, ecologist Bev Baker alerted us that they are here. It usually is associated with fairly slow moving creeks and waters. Uh-oh, Scott's sound. See by the baby's breath? There's one about two feet behind it. There it is. We're edging closer to the creek. See the baby's breath? Yeah. Look at halfway in between. Yes, yes. Oh, Scott. It is gorgeous. What a thrill. This is the ebony wing with her wings folded back. There it goes again. Gorgeous when it's flying because it's got a real wiggly kind of flight. These broad-winged damselflies almost resemble butterflies because of their big, broad wings. They have a really amazing fluttering flight. It's almost a helicopter-type flight. They use these black wings to signal each other. You'll see them perched on a leaf, and they'll flare the black wings out, kind of like an air traffic controller on an aircraft carrier signaling somebody. And they'll flare those wings out to say, Hey, guy, come on over, or... Stay away from me. This is my territory. This is where I'm hunting insects. I just spotted a mature male that has a bright emerald body. There's three or four perched in the willows that overhang the creek. They're all sort of lined up with their heads facing the creek so that they can catch insects that are emerging off the water surface and nab them quickly out of the air. Oh, there he goes. Oh, he just flew. Yeah. Right around... July 14th or 15th, there'll be hundreds 
here. They have a fairly short lifespan, just a few weeks. So get out here in July if you want to see them. Ruth Carol Cushman and Scott Sievers are Boulder naturalists. You can see the Ebony Jewel Wing in person this month at a little creek in Flag Park near Lafayette. Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Celiac disease is an autoimmune condition that damages the lining of the gut. This can lead to symptoms that include skin rashes, weight gain, weight loss, along with mood swings, learning problems, and indigestion. A new study from Mass General Children's Hospital indicates celiac disease doesn't just happen. The Mass General team has been tracking the gut microbiome in 500 children, starting from birth. The researchers have compared the gut microbes of children who went on to have celiac with the gut microbes of children who do not have celiac disease. They discovered that a year and a half before celiac disease manifested, the gut microbes of children who ended up with celiac disease were very different from the gut microbes of children who did not end up with celiac. Here's more from the study's lead author, Dr. Maureen Leonard. Future studies will focus on inflammatory cytokines in the blood, markers of increased intestinal permeability and when we might be able to see that. And the goal with this study is to really just take more and more from what we gather and put it into a system and try to really build a predictive model to really figure out which child will go on to develop celiac disease. Maureen Leonard is the lead author and clinical director of the Center for Celiac Research and Treatment at Mass General Hospital for Children. We'll have more about her research into the gut microbiome and celiac disease in a future program. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. We want you to know that KGNU Boulder is a volunteer-powered radio station. We science volunteers invite listeners to team up and share your comments with us about what you'd like to hear, what you've liked in our shows, and what you'd like us to do better. For anyone who'd like to join the science show team in producing shows, we do have openings, and we're happy to help train you in so you can be a science show team member. For more on that, contact the station via email at kgnu.org, and they'll pass it on to us. Up next, we'll talk with CU Boulder sociologist Ryan Masters about his new research that indicates overall lifespan in the U.S. has gone down, especially in this time of COVID, especially in middle-aged people of color. Stay tuned. In the U.S., COVID has killed over 600,000 people. Most of those who've died of COVID were either old or else had pre-existing conditions that already put their lives at risk. So while death is tragic, some experts hope for a silver lining. They predict that in the next few years, the high death rates we've seen this year will mean we have lower death rates in the years ahead and better longevity. But a new analysis from CU Boulder doesn't paint such a rosy picture. With us is CU Boulder sociologist, Ryan Masters. Ryan, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you, Shelley. Tell us about this study that you did in conjunction with Virginia School of Medicine. Sure. It was recently published in the BMJ. That's the British Journal of Medicine? Correct, although they recently changed the title to simply be the BMJ. This was in conjunction with Stephen Wolfe, who is an MD 
at Virginia Commonwealth University and Lawden Aaron with the Urban Institute. I came to work with them through a joint effort with the National Academies of Science on a recent consensus study published on high and rising midlife mortality in the United States. High and rising meaning people who are middle-aged are dying more often? That's absolutely correct. The long-term trends have not been good for the United States population. Now, wait a second. We're known in the United States as people who know how to live a long time, have a good health care system. But you're saying even before COVID, the rates of longevity in the United States were ticking downward. Not exactly ticking downward, although they were for some subpopulations. But for the United States overall, you're absolutely correct that in the long term, we had been on a disadvantaged life expectancy trajectory, especially relative to other high-income countries. People in their middle age right now are dying more often than they did 10 years ago. Yes, there has been a tragic, surprising, and really worrisome trend about midlife mortality in the United States, especially across the 2010s. But even prior to that, life expectancy gains in the United States have been falling further and further behind life expectancy gains in other high-income countries as early as the 1980s. The 2010s came along, and life expectancy in the United States essentially flatlined for many populations while it continued to increase in other high-income countries. We're the United States. We're supposed to be the best. Not in terms of health profile or longevity. We rank about 40th overall in life expectancy, virtually below every other high-income country in the world, and much lower, actually, than many middle-income countries. This is even before COVID. Yes. Stagnating life expectancy. Bit by bit, people in the United States are not living longer on average. They're living a little bit less. That's correct. There were some worrying trends as early as 2010 where life expectancy continued to uptick, but very, very slowly compared to other high-income countries. And then there was a widely documented actual life expectancy decline between 2013 and 2017 before it then upticked only 0.1 year again in 2018. It was going down about 0.1 year, meaning basically a month, a year for a few years going down. Right. Prior to other years, the death rates of people who are 25 years old, 30 years old, 40 years old, were not lower than they were for prior generations. And so life expectancy as a summary measure of all of those age-specific death rates indicated, unlike other high-income countries where we expect life expectancy to continually increase as death rates across the board just steadily decline as we improve our nutrition, improve our health behaviors, improve our health care access, that all has a, a cumulative effect of lowering death rates at, at all ages. That simply wasn't taking place in the United States. Listen to what you just said, though, as we improve our health care, as we improve our food. Is there a problem in the United States? Are we not improving those things? Absolutely. The two primary underlying factors for why the United States life expectancy has not been improving at the same rates as in other high-income countries has been one, what researchers refer to as the obesogenic environment. Ryan Masters, obesogenic, that sounds like a mean thing to say to someone. Obesogenic makes it sound like, well, you let yourself get fat. Oh, absolutely not. This is not an individualized concept, as I refer to the obesogenic environment. I don't want to lay the blame on individuals. This is largely a built environment issue that has been long at play. Obesity rates in the United States began to uptick really in the late 70s, across the 80s, steadily through the 90s, and all the way into the 2010s. And they continue to increase, especially among children and young adults. The duration of time spent with a higher body mass is actually going up as well. And the mortality 
and health consequences of obesity have been shown to be duration dependent. Much like smoking, the longer you spend your life smoking or the longer you spend your time in an obese state, the mortality consequences tend to go up and up and up. So we're starting to see sort of this lagged effect of those people who possibly became obese early in life and they're aging into middle adulthood, into older adulthood, having spent a longer time of their life in an obese state. And this elevates comorbidities such as diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease risk factors, underlying risk factors for COVID-19 as well. Oh, that's right. All those comorbidities. Well, you know, this is disturbing because so far, at least in the United States, it hasn't been figured out how to reverse the obesogenic environment. What we estimated in the study was that life expectancy in the United States overall, so this is for all populations, between 2018 and 2020 declined by almost two years. Almost two years. That's a lot. How does that compare with other times in the history of the United States? There have never been a decline of that size since World War II. That was about a 2.9-year decline between 1942 and 1943. Since that time, however, we've only seen life expectancy reductions on the magnitudes that we had just uh, referred to before, those 0.1 declines that garnered quite a bit of media attention between 2013 and 2017. 0.1 decline, which is basically one month less a year. Right. But when you compare it to the steady progress that were being made in other high-income countries, it takes a long-term cumulative toll. So by 2010, for example, the United States life expectancy overall was almost two years below the average life expectancy in other high-income countries. So we were already well below the average life expectancy in other high-income countries. And then by 2018, life expectancy in the United States essentially flatlined and declined across some of those years. That two-year gap between the U.S. and other high-income countries had grown another year and a half. And then along comes COVID, and it has grown another year and a half. And so the United States had already been steadily falling behind and then really fell behind across the 2010s, and then COVID-19 was overlaid on top of that. We are now over four and a half years below life expectancy in other high-income countries. This is the United States. This is the United States, yes. I'm going to use an argument from Tucker Carlson from Fox News. He's not the only one who says this. There are economists who echo this kind of thought. It's basically that the majority of people who've died from COVID are around 80 years old. A lot of people who were possibly close to dying anyway. Tucker Carlson does not have his facts straight. Sure, there are some countries in which the proportion of life expectancy lost was primarily due to those people who were in older ages. Take Belgium. This is a country that was devastated by COVID-19. They lost almost a whole year of life expectancy. Still, that's only half of the life expectancy compared to the United States, but this is a Western European country that did lose a large amount of, of life as a result of the COVID-19 epidemic. Nearly every single death that contributed to that loss of life expectancy occurred over the age of 65. The majority of it, especially in the female Belgian population, occurred over the age of 85. In contrast, the United States, let's just take the male population, 56% of the life expectancy loss among the U.S. male population was due to elevated death rates at ages younger than 65. Wait a second, in the United States... Over half of the people who died of COVID. Not of COVID. This study, the classification of COVID as a specific cause of death is just too messy and murky to try to 
disaggregate. So Ryan Masters, you didn't say, well, how many COVID deaths have there been? You said, how many people died in the United States? We are looking at the change in life expectancy between 2018 and 2020 from all causes of death. Because there were many causes of death that were underlying risk factors for COVID that were oftentimes attributed to that underlying cause of death. But when you look week by week at when those underlying causes of death increased. So for example, deaths attributable to diabetes or deaths in which the underlying cause of death was listed as cardiovascular disease. Those elevated in the same way as the COVID waves did across the year. So those early deaths that occurred in in New York and New Jersey, the summer wave, and then that tragic holiday wave in November through January. The uptick in those underlying causes of death from cardiovascular disease, from diabetes, from stroke, from hypertensive heart disease, those all moved with COVID. If you look at other causes of death, such as certain site-specific cancers that were unrelated, they didn't move at all in any elevated way. But those ones that we've talked about, the diabetes, the heart disease, the high blood pressure, maybe somebody didn't have on their death certificate that they died of COVID, but it tipped them over the edge. Oftentimes the tests weren't performed or autopsies weren't performed. The sequence of events that led up to that ultimate demise due to a heart attack or septicemia or whatever it may have been in that hospital setting oftentimes was inaccurate. And that's, that's true for every year, but I think it was especially messy for 2020. So you said, never mind the cause of death. We're just going to look at who died. And in the United States, unlike many other countries that are developed nations, we're supposed to be a developed nation in the United States. In the United States, the number of people who died that were under 65 was pretty darn high. The number of deaths that occurred under the age of 65 was the largest contributing factor to our life expectancy decline in the U.S. male population. In the U.S. female population, deaths under the age of 65 accounted for about 40% of the loss. Now, again, when you contrast it to the loss of life expectancy in other high-income countries, they barely saw any change in deaths under the age of 65. Almost all of the elevated mortality was primarily due to deaths occurring at older aged populations. That simply was not the case in the United States. And so it really does push back against this narrative that has been trumpeted by many people, Tucker Carlson, as you just referenced, who said, well, these are deaths that were overwhelmingly concentrated at older ages. That simply is not the case in the United States. It's one of the most tragic elements of this story. These are people in the primes of their lives who have much of their future ahead. They haven't lived their lives yet, and then they die. And there's been a study that suggested that for every death that occurred in 2020, there were upwards of 10 people bereaved and mourning that death, living with the ramifications of that person no longer being in their household, whether it be financial strain or familial disruption of having to move out of their house. And so the ripple effects of this loss of life completely pushes against this narrative that these are people who are at their end stage of their lives and and there are no consequences to this loss of life. The second tragic story to this was that the loss of life disproportionately fell along race-ethnic lines in in what we would argue is very predictable ways. The overall loss of life of about two years in the U.S., if you break that down by race-ethnicity, There was about a one and a half year loss of life among the U.S. white population, but about three and a quarter year loss of life among the U.S. black population and over four years of life expectancy loss among the U.S. Hispanic population. That's a big difference. And some of that difference has been attributed to genetic differences that some people, what has been said in some cases is that some people who may genetically be more prone to high blood pressure 
you're shaking your head. Absolutely. No. When we talk about race, ethnic identity, these are socially and politically constructed categories. Every 10 years, we change the definition of how we measure race, ethnicity. These are socially constructed classifications that ultimately result in very differential health outcomes. But in no way do we, we interpret these differences as having underlying genetic or biological components. So you're saying that if you looked at someone's genes, if somebody marks down that they're Latino versus that they're black or a Caucasian, you're not going to see a lot of genetic difference in those definitions. Why call it genetic? It's going to be a matter of somebody's social and cultural life and the differential exposures that they might have across their life to environmental pollutants, to different types of food sources that are available in their neighborhood, a differential workplace exposures and stressors, chronic exposure and acute exposure to discriminations and systemic racism. These types of things elevates one's vulnerability and exposures to things such as COVID. And it, so if you take one example, for example, of who was deemed an essential worker, these are oftentimes low-wage workers, very much disproportionately represented by the Latino and Black population, food line workers, delivery folks. We literally let the COVID epidemic run its course through many segments of the population. Burn through. We were letting those caseloads rip disproportionately through communities of color. And we are now seeing the consequences in it with the death statistics that we're reporting. So not only does the United States have one of the worst track records for longevity among developed nations, but we have a deplorable track record for how it hits different ethnic groups. The younger age profile of these deaths and the disproportionate concentration in communities of color magnified the death toll in those communities. Ryan Masters, Sea Boulder sociologist, can you give me a little good news? Could it be that the pundits who've said, at least now the big wave of COVID is done? In 2021, we still had quite a large peak of that holiday surge. So although we stopped counting our deaths on December 31st, 2020, when you look at the actual death counts, there was still exceedingly high mortality counts all the way through January and, and February as well. Let's not assume that in 2021, we're going to see a lowering of death rates. But how about 2022? Most likely, although the rollout of the vaccine hasn't been as, as celebratory as, as it possibly could be, um, the likelihood of a case resulting in deaths is going exceedingly down. And we see those in the death counts now, although we're seeing case rates going up with the Delta variant. Although we do see increases in hospitalizations, the vaccine is working as it intends. It does not prohibit transmission, but it does prevent the escalation of the mortality consequences. And so we're seeing that across countries. And so there is optimism there. What I would want to highlight, however, is that a return to normal U.S. life expectancy is nothing to celebrate. Since 2010, we have been falling increasingly behind peer countries. If we use them as the, the benchmark to which we want to aspire, if we are going to be the best or number one in life expectancy. We have a long way to go. We are over four and a half years behind other countries. And that is work that takes 40, 50 years of improvement and investment in our health infrastructure. And so I don't see us returning back to a trajectory that is anything to look forward to. We were on a dismal trajectory before COVID came. COVID ripped off and exposed many of these underlying systematic factors, such as systemic racism, rising in inequality, differential access to health care, 
These are things that have long put the United States at a disadvantaged state relative to other high-income countries, and those are still in place, and possibly even in exceedingly worse conditions following the pandemic. You know, Rain Masters, CU Boulder, a sociologist, this is not a rosy picture. It's quite tragic across many levels. In the United States, people in their middle ages have been most affected in this way by mortality during the time of COVID. But you actually, in your report about COVID and mortality in the year 2020, you point out that people who've had COVID, if they have comorbidities, it still may tip them over the edge in the years ahead. It's possible. Again, I don't want to forecast. I'm not an epidemiologist or a virologist who is studying the long-term health consequences of COVID, but uh, they're not documenting it yet. But they worry that COVID is more like a tuberculosis infection than it is a flu infection. So a flu infection, you, you sort of get over it and move past it. It's acute and concentrated within that window of infection, whereas something like tuberculosis hangs in your body. I think some people are worried that COVID, the vascular implication... Meaning that our blood vessels, our heart, that those can be affected by COVID. It's possible that the health consequences reflect some autoimmune responses or inflammatory responses into the future. Or it could simply be that the toll that the infection had on vital organ systems leave them sort of in a a crippled or or less optimal state. And so you continue to age with that damage done, and that leaves you in a vulnerable state as well. So I think there's a number of reasons why we might be worried that an infection of COVID aging into the future might continue to have lasting consequences for one's health. We've been talking with Ryan Masters, CU Boulder sociologist, who has just published a a study in the journal BMJ indicating that the overall mortality death in the United States was especially high in people in middle age during COVID, which is not good news. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Soul Merge, Pop Loops for Breakfast, and The Bad Plus. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.